there, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 346 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is time for us to talk more hoops with all of you. We have gotten some more video of the team in action to, to whet our appetites about the upcoming season. Um, there is also this uh, very interesting survey done by uh, CBS Sports regarding the future of the Duke program compared to the UNC program. And we got a little bit of football to talk with you about, but we're going to save that for later. We're going to start with the basketball. Before we get to any of it, though, we got to tell you who the heck's talking to you because you're probably here for the first time. I mean, like, we got to introduce ourselves. No one knows who we are after 346 episodes, right? <laughs> first time, long time. Exactly right. First time, long time. I am Jason Evans, your host this week, your Sherpa, as we guide our way through the wilderness. Joining me, as always, Donald Wine and Sam Klein. Donald, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing just fine. It's a beautiful, beautiful weekend here in DC. So I've been out enjoying the weather, uh, which has been great. Ditto. Exactly. And you know, I did something today I haven't done in a long time. I played basketball with a bunch of buddies of mine for, you know, I did this for like four or five years. All these guys who went to, they're all parents of kids at the same school. And we, we haven't done it in two years. And today we finally decided to do it again. But the big question for the moment is Sam Klein is with us. We have not had much of Sam lately. He's been very busy. Sam, what have you been up to? Uh, working and working. So it is, it's great to be here and talking to you guys because I have been very tired from work recently. I uh, have had just because of the, the, where we are in the calendar right now, uh, companies that, that hire a lot of MBA students are like starting to ramp up the conversations that they have on campus with, with students. And, and my current job, we recruit a lot of students out of MBA programs like I was once upon a time. And uh, so I've, I've talked to a lot of uh, Duke Fuqua MBA students recently, and a few of them mentioned that they listened to the show. So if I met you in the last two weeks and you go to Fuqua, <laughs> hey, uh, great to see you. <laughs> and uh, I hope you stick around for this uh, because, you know, this is the this is sort of the fun part of the week. A really quick, funny recruiting story. So my son, um, my younger son got a job at Disney in corporate strategy. He has been on the job for maybe six weeks. And one of the major things he's doing over the next several weeks is recruiting. And I'm like, how can you be, you don't even know where anything is. How can you be? Oh, they turn us there? around. They turn us around into recruiters as soon as we walk in the door. It's just a, it's a machine. <laughs> it is. It's crazy. It's great. He's going to be interviewing like dozens of people and they have one, they have one position to fill. It's, it seems to me like it's That's a, how it works. Yeah, exactly. Do uh, I okay. get Jason, do I get to react to, to the episodes that I missed? Cause I have a few notes. Oh, let's do that now. Ooh. Sure. Before we get into everything else, Sam, give us your notes on the previous episodes. <laughs> so I think I missed the entire JJ Reddick farewell retirement hubbub. So I listened to uh, this show's discussion of it. I listened to JJ's retirement podcast. I listened to the live show that he did where he talked to a bunch of people about the retirement and all these things. I had a couple notes uh, we talked, I guess you guys talked on this show about like how old we're all getting and, and how old JJ was relative to the league. I know Donald was opining about this because there are very few players left who were at Duke. The, JJ was the last player who Donald went to school with who played in the NBA. So now yeah, they're all gone. Car Carmelo and, um, and Andre Iguodala. And Andre Iguodala are like the only guys left at all. Yeah. Older and I him. wanted to tell you that, that JJ was even – you know, he, like JJ was pretty old for an NBA player to begin with, because as I'm looking, I, I went and looked at 
the guys who were still in the NBA who I went to Duke with. And keep in mind, I graduated from Duke as an undergrad 10 years ago. The only guys left in the NBA who I was at Duke with are Seth Curry, Kyrie Irving, and Mason Plumley. That's it. Miles Plumley is out of the league. Um, uh, Kyle Singler's out of the league. Lance Thomas is out of the league. And they had like Kyle Singler and Lance Thomas and Miles Plumley all had relatively speaking, like long productive NBA careers, not all stars, not, you know, hundreds of millions in career earnings, but like really strong NBA careers. I've only got three left. So, uh, so, so time passes you by pretty quick. One other note uh, that was sort of ancillary to JJ. And then I want to just spend a few seconds talking about JJ Redick because I didn't get to yet. You guys were talking about the, uh, the free throw thing and how, and how JJ uh, needed the needed the hype for the for the free throws. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've talked about it before. I I know I think about this all the time, but Demarcus Nelson went through a stretch when he was in school. Demarcus Nelson, not like JJ Redick, was not a good free throw shooter. Like he was a yeah. bad free throw shooter at Duke, and he went through these same struggles. So he was a senior when I was a freshman, and his senior year he could not make a free throw, and the Cameron Crazy started giving him the JJ Redick treatment. And and would like clap politely and sort of like and sort of like start a little bit of momentum for him to start hitting free throws. This happened like midway through the season. I, I, and I distinctly remember it because it was like, whoa, this is so different from from the rest of the experience. So that was one memory. And then uh, if I can just spend a few seconds on J.J. Redick. So J.J. Redick was at Duke when basically when I was in high school, I was uh, he graduated from Duke after my junior year of high school. And I was a Duke fan growing up. I grew up in Maryland. I know I've talked about that a lot. I had to endure a lot of J.J. Redick related hate from Maryland fans who I went to high school with. And you can imagine oh, you know, it was being <laughs> like being like 15, 16 years old and being like, I love J.J. Redick and everyone around me being like, a, you know, Juan Dixon or Steve Blake or Grievous Vasquez fan. Like th- that was my whole sort of formative experience. So I, I feel like I have a strong connection with JJ Reddick's college career because it was really formative in my time as a sports fan. And it's probably a big reason that I sort of have like hipster tendencies about my, about my sports interests now is that I'm like, I endured that I am, I am good enough to make it through rooting for JJ Reddick in the mid two thousands, living in suburban Maryland. I can do anything. So um, I, I am very proud of J.J. Reddick's career. I think it's awesome that he was able to hang on so long. And if you got to listen to his podcasts, there were a few sort of interesting things about his career that he brought up. Two that I wanted to highlight here that I thought were fascinating, specifically for Duke fans. One is how much he regrets leaving Philadelphia and going to the Pelicans in that offseason. I know we oh, yeah. were excited yeah. about it because mm-hmm. he got to play with Zion, but he was in such a cool uh, spot in Philadelphia at a team that now is, if you're still following the soccer with the Sixers is a total disaster, Turmoil. but was, <laughs> was pretty cool when JJ was there. And then the other interesting thing that he brought up in his podcast this week is that the only uh, current NBA player who he called when he, like the day that he decided to retire before he sort of announced it to the world was Chris Paul, because they've become very close as members of the Clippers and Duke fans, again, if you were around, the, you know, watching Duke in the mid 2000s, I think this is like one of the most fascinating friendships to have developed related <laughs> to Duke players, because Chris Paul and anything related to Duke basketball were not friendly in any way in, in 2005, 2004 timeframe 
when Chris Paul was at Wake Forest. So I thought that was pretty cool too. Well, well, but I feel like those two guys could bond over the fact J.J. Redick, most hated Duke player of the past 20 years or so. Chris Paul, most hated Wake Forest player of the past 20 plus years. You I know? think their relationship in college was basically like they they certainly knew each other coming up. I think they're only I think they're they overlap part. They're, they're they like overlap. a year apart in high school. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So they played each other like in AAU and stuff. And they both come from the same area. Right. JJ grew up in rural Virginia. Chris Paul obviously is from North Carolina. So they encountered each other a lot on the junior circuit. I think they did not like each other when they were in like high school and college. They like respected each other's games, but were like, look, you're over here. I'm over there. We don't like each other. That's okay. They eventually became very good friends when they played on the Clippers together. So that is where their, their friendship like really formed that, that we know today. JJ Reddick did not punch Julius Hodge in the, you know, where, so <laughs> I'm just saying, look, there's a, there was a, there was a lot of bad blood in the ACC in, yeah. in that oh, time yeah. that I, that the I Patrick Davidson like, game is one that will live forever. We could talk about that forever. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think when, when Chris Paul was on JJ's podcast at some point in, I don't know if like sometime in the last year, I think they talked extensively about that. And JJ, like all he could do was laugh about it. Look, mm-hmm. I have a, I have a friend who's a Wake Forest fan and uh, a couple of years ago, when Duke fans were taking all kinds of hell for Grayson Allen, he would, you know, Grayson tripping guys and stuff like that. He he refused to give me any shit for it. And he said, he's like, look, I, I can't give you anything over that because Chris Paul was knocking guys in the nuts left and right. <laughs> he's like, I got no room to talk. So. And then one final thing, uh, Donald mentioned on the last episode, you guys were recording at the end of September. And so Donald had to quote Green Day. Uh, if we're doing if we're doing pop culture references that are now older than you would like to admit, uh, Happy Mean Girls Day! To happy Mean Girls there. Day! I knew it was coming. It's October third. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Okay, so should we start to talk about Duke basketball current stuff now? Why not? Wait, 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 wait. Okay, now we can do it. Now we can do it. <laughs> uh, let's get to the fact that we got some great footage of the players doing a scrimmage the other day. Um, it's worth noting uh, Joey Baker was not involved in the scrimmage at all. There are a lot of people who are like, where's Joey? He was a little bit banged up. We, we heard at media day that Joey Baker is battling a few little injuries and stuff like that. But uh, so Joey didn't play. But other than that, we got to see pretty much everybody on the team. We got our first, I feel like we got our first extended look um, at, at a lot of these guys. Bates Jones. I've never seen, I hadn't seen Bates Jones play at all. I don't think so. It was nice to get to see that. Um, and let's talk through, you know, what we saw from the players. It was, it was one of these edited highlights. So there could have been a run of, of guys missing 15 consecutive three pointers. We wouldn't have seen any of that <laughs> guys, guys basically shot close to hundred percent in this video. If you, if you didn't make your basket, it was because someone was making a spectacular block shot um, or, or, or some guy was making a steal or something like that, or, or there's going to be a rebound that was going to turn into a fast break the other way. So it's not super revealing, but you can see the way the guys are moving on the floor. You can see the way they're moving the ball around and things like that. There's some stuff to be gleaned here. Donald, I'll go to you first. What are your big takeaways? What'd you see? What'd you like? Uh, you know, what, what was going on in this video that, that makes you excited about the season? Well, I'll avoid the obvious. And I want to start with something that could be a pseudo prediction or at least an observation based on this combined with some of the stuff we've seen over the summer. I I'm looking at five guys that I think have the potential to average double figures and points this year. And those five guys are Paulo Bencaro, Wendell Moore, Mark Williams, AJ Griffin, and Trevor Keels. Now it's just a matter of which ones will, 
right? We, we obviously think that Paulo Bancaro will average in double figures. We think that maybe Wendell Moore and or Mark Williams could also do that as well. It's just a matter of, you know, when we get down to one basketball and one team, how that division goes. But I will say this, there is one guy that I thought through these, uh, through the scrimmage that we saw the other day that could be right there in close on points, but also really distributing the ball very well is not Trevor Keels. It's Jeremy Roach. Jeremy Roach had a lot of plays where he was distributing the basketball to guys who were making plays. And obviously for a lot of people out there, everyone's like, Oh, why does it, you know, people have a lot of assists. It's because it's a two way street. You have to pass the ball to someone and that's that someone has to make a play. And we have a lot of guys that can make plays. And if Jeremy Roach can be a facilitator and distributing ball to a lot of guys, one, we saw he's very good with steals. We knew that from last year. That seems to have ratcheted up a notch. Trevor Keels and Wendell Moore also can get their hands in passing lanes, steal the basketball, go the other way very quickly. But with Jeremy Roach, his ability to be able to distribute the ball is going to be super important this year, no matter how many minutes he plays. Because if he can be efficient in that regard, we will have a lot of guys who can score a lot of points. And again, on any given night, it, you know, we'll have a couple of guys that we know are going to go for 20, but we have other guys that can go for 30. And if we have guys that can do that, it's going to trickle all the way down the rest of the lineup and everyone's going to be able to be efficient on that offense. So let me do a couple of things really quick. And then I want to go to Sam and Sam, I'm going to, I'm going to tee this up for you. I'm going to ask you who, you, who you were the most impressed with, but I want to start with a couple other things really quickly. First, the first one is, um, I think it's very interesting. I'm not sure if you guys noticed this. That, so it was clear to me they divided the teams, at least for the first, there were three scrimmages that we saw. For the first scrimmage, there was a blue team and a white team, and it was pretty clear that one team was the starters because it was a team that had Jeremy Roach and Wendell Moore and Paolo Bancaro and Mark Williams. And then the fifth starter was Trevor Keels. It was not A.J. Griffin. I thought it was very interesting to note that Trevor Keels was running with those four guys as presumably the fifth starter. And, and regarding A.J. Griffin, I thought he seemed a little bit slower than I would have expected. He had a couple turnovers that did, weren't great. Um, but then later on, he, he picked it up a bit. He hit a couple threes. Now, we know he's been dogged by nagging injuries. Um, and, and I fully expect him to come around. But I think it's sort of interesting that at this moment, I suspect if Duke was playing a game tomorrow, I don't think A.J. Griffin would be starting. I, I will say that there was a point at the very end of the of the video, the la I guess the last scrimmage that they had, A.J. Griffin was on the white team with right, those right. guys at, in addition to uh, uh, Trevor Keels. So like Trevor Keels, like basically they had a, a bench sub and A.J. Griffin was coming off the bench for Trevor Keels at times in that very last like minute or so of the video. Right. Okay. So, so with that said, and I know we've got, we've all got a lot more we want to talk about, but I want to get to Sam. So Sam, like I said, who was the most impressive player to you? I was watching this footage at the same time that I was listening to you all talk about the press conference from the other day. And it felt like Wendell Moore was echoing in my head and on screen. God, wasn't he, jumps, I mean, he was great. I thought in he this jumps game. out to me as having, and, and you were talking about this and he was talking about it in the press conference. The coaches have talked about how much he has worked on both his game and his body this off season and how much he's grown physically and also gotten more fit and more sort of mature physically. You can see that so much on the court and we underrate, I think, especially as Duke fans of the last 10 years, who have watched a lot of young guys run the, the show for the Blue Devils, I think we underrate how important it is to be 
physically mature in college basketball and how different it is being a 20, 21, 22 year old, like Wendell Moore is versus being an 18 year old and how much of a difference that can make and how much, you know, different guys mature physically at different rates. We are seeing physically mature Wendell Moore. And that is really exciting to me. He is going to be not only a leader on this team because he's a junior and a captain, but because he's going to be one of the most talented guys. He doesn't probably have the highest NBA ceiling. That's Paulo Bancaro. That's AJ Griffin. But Wendell Moore is going to be in a lot of highlights this year for the Blue Devils. And by the way, don't forget, as this season is going on, the stuff that Wendell Moore has had to go through so far, because he's now a junior in the program, hasn't made the NCAA tournament yet because he didn't get to play in it <laughs> freshman year. And obviously the team didn't make the tournament last year. You're going to be hearing a lot about how Captain Wendell Moore as a junior is seeking his first NCAA tournament berth this year and how much he wants that. So that was the part that was standing out to me the most in this practice uh, footage. I love that you highlighted him first because I agree. I thought he was absolutely fabulous. He clearly looks quicker and leaner, more fluid. His shot was much, his release on his shot, just it looks like he's remade his shot a little bit and he hit multiple threes. I think he was probably the leading scorer in this uh, in this scrimmage video that we saw, um, he, he looked like the best guy in the team in terms of penetrating and scoring off penetration, you know, the mid-range game. Um, you know, just everything about Wendell Moore's game. And by the way, he, he got the steals and deflections that he always gets. Um, but I, I thought everything about his game looked like sort of what we hope his game could be, you know, like over the past couple of years, but, oh, if he could add a little more shooting, oh, if he could add a little more fluidity, a little more athleticism, it feels like he's added all those things to what was already an impressive package. Donald, let me come back to you now. All right, we've talked a little about the guards. Uh, and by the way, at some point, I want to come back and talk about Trevor Keels because I thought Trevor Keels was fabulous as well. But first, let's get to the big men. Talk to me about Paolo Bencaro, Mark Williams, Theo John. What'd you see from our bigs? So, for Paulo Bancaro, we're, we're echoing a lot of stuff that we've said before about him, but his his flow of the game just feels effortless on both offense and defense. Like whenever he gets the ball, it seems like he knows exactly what he wants to do with it, and and he makes it as efficient as po as possible. To you know, his shot just feels just like like you know someone just you know waking up and getting out of bed and going through routine because it's every single time it looks the same. And I really like that about him, but also he's, he's distributing the ball too. We've seen plays where he's passed the ball into Michael Savarino. We've seen him where he's finding guys on the, on the, on the wing for open jumper. He's not necessarily trying to do it all himself, which I really like about uh, Paulo Bencaro. But when I go to Mark Williams, Mark Williams is going to be a beast this year. And if he, if I am correct in that prediction, Theo John is going to be the reason he gets there because Theo John is a massive human being, but looks like, like me next to Mark Williams because everyone does. But what I've when I see this, in this matchup, Mark Williams has to be more physical. Mark Williams has to be more intimidating and, and, and an imposing presence in, in the post. And Theo John is helping him get there. And what I extrapolate that to the rest of the guys that are considered quote unquote, the end of the bench, you know, like Bates Jones, uh, Keeney Worthington, those type of guys, Michael Savarino. If those guys get better every single day, that's going to really help the rest of our team grow because it doesn't matter if Paulo Bancaro improves from day one to day, you know, 50, if no one else comes with them. If those bench guys can improve 
as they, as I seen them this summer, they've all shown a lot of progress. This is really going to help our team. That's how good teams become elite teams. It's not necessarily your starting five. It's not necessarily your sixth man or seventh man. It's those guys that are training, that are going against those guys every day to push them to be better. And I think with all these guys, we talked about the chemistry that is clearly really, really good with this team. That is all a part of that because Theo John, he may not get as many minutes as he wants as a, as a, as a senior transfer, but he is going to make sure that Mark Williams is the best player that he can be that this team needs. And he's also going to make sure that he's the best, that Paul Van is the best player he can be because he's going to match up against him too in practice. And in those games, having Theo John come off the bench for two to three, four minutes, whatever it is, and spelling those guys and getting, you know, three rebounds and a massive dunk to like, like, could, you know, really spell or spark our offense. That is exactly what he's, I mean, he's embraced his role. And I think that is what these guys have seen and what I've seen from these guys, they've all embraced the roles that they are going to have. And we, because of that, all of them are getting better. And if the 12th man is getting better, that means this team is going to be a really, really strong team come March. By, by the way, regarding Theo, John, Sam, can I put in a request right now when we do the minute, uh, sorry, when we do the, uh, the stats game, I want a Theo John minutes per game question because I think it's going to be very, very interesting. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. I wanted to bring that up actually, because if you think about the big men, Paulo and Mark Williams should both play 30 minutes a game, right? That like Mark Williams didn't play that much that last year, but he was certainly trending up at the end of the season. He's very skilled. You, you basically can't keep him off the floor, especially for defense. And Paulo is going to be a, you know, doing it at both ends kind of guy. The question is how much can Theo John one spell both of them in terms of, you know, replacing some of the production and two playing with each of them. I'm not as worried about him playing next to Paulo Bancaro, who we know is happy playing on the perimeter with Mark Williams. It's going to be a little bit more challenging for them to play together. Although I would not be surprised if coach K figures out how to do it for five minutes a game. So Theo John, you know, if he's not coordinated, if he can't handle the, the sort of expectations in the ACC, I don't know why he wouldn't, but if he can't, it's five minutes a game, but he could play 15 or 20 minutes a game if he really is that skilled. And Duke could be looking at a true three-person big man rotation if he's the one coming in to spell both Mark Williams and Paulo. So, Jason, I am I am right there with you. I am very excited about Theo John. He showed a couple of moves in this game. And by the way, it's not like – I don't want to put him down. It's not like Theo John is coming from like a bad program. He's coming from yeah. from having – Coming from with, Marquette. With, with Steve Wojciechowski at Marquette. Not like and he knows were, the system because exactly. it's not like it's not it's like not it's like a, they were winning national championships, system. but uh, he let, he's been involved be, in in, you know, high major college basketball already and he knows what he's doing. So I am not I am not worried about him at least being able to contribute a little bit. This is not. And, and by the way, like Bates Jones, probably not getting much playing time in ACC play. That's OK. Theo John expects to play. He doesn't expect to, you know, start and play 25 minutes a game, but. Uh, he is going to be an integral part of this team. And he showed some of that in this scrimmage. He does not look lost the way you might expect some graduate student transfers to be. And then I know we want to come back and talk about the guards a little bit. Jason, before I throw it back to you, I wanted to comment a little bit about what we were seeing with Trevor Keels getting to play next to Jeremy Roach, his old running mate from high school. 
that is really intriguing to me as kind of the the super sub off the bench because between Theo John, Trevor Keels, Jalen Blakes, Joey Baker, you've got bench guys who are all very different from each other. I, I don't think any of them overlap too much in terms of their skills. And if Trevor Keels is the is the sixth man on this this team, I think that's great because he's going to be able to to come in for Wendell Moore, to come in for AJ Griffin, to kind of do a lot of things, especially if he's playing next to Jeremy Roach. The concern you would have for freshmen like that is that they're going to be inconsistent if they aren't getting too many minutes. But the fact that Keels has that that great working relationship with Jeremy Roach, and the fact that Jeremy Roach, who we haven't I don't think talked about enough yet so far looks so locked in and, and also so much improved from his freshman season only means that it's going to sort of bring Trevor Keels along with him. All right. So Trevor Keels, I got to say this, Donald, you're going to love this. I figured out who Trevor Keels is going to be on this team. Trevor Keels is Vinny Johnson. He's the microwave. He's coming off the yes, bench. Sir. He's got that same build. Now I know uh, Sam, we're probably going back before your time. Do you remember Vinny Johnson at all, Sam? I am aware historically of what role Vinny Johnson played, though I do not remember watching him. So Vinny Johnson was a, a, a guard who, you know, came off the, he came off the bench. He was instant offense off the bench, but sort of the, the weird thing about Vinny Johnson was he, he was built like, it was built like a tank. Dude was just incredibly solid. You would bump into him and bump off of him. And then he'd take his shot and he'd hit it. And, and what I saw from Trevor Keels in this scrimmage was, a guy who can absorb contact and finish. He just had a knack for scoring. He was one of these guys where you were like, you weren't like, oh, put the ball in his hands. He's going to score. Sort of like, oh, wait, you know, I I didn't notice him doing that much. And then you look down at the box score and he's got 15 points. That's what, that's what I think Trevor Keels is sort of like. And, and I also thought he was impressive on D. Trevor Keels had a couple nice steals. Um, He leaked out for a lot of fast breaks. Could I I make a more Duke specific comparison? Could he be, could he be thick Dante Jones? Mm. I think he's a better ball handler and better shooter. Uh, you know, so I don't say similar build though. The body size, I was gonna say the body same kind of like, same kind of like, like come off the, be- like not the star of your team, but in terms of coming off the bench and sort of doing a lot of things uh, and, and being active, I, it's not a perfect comparison, but I'm trying but, to find uh, trying to find guys that the Duke fans will, will uh, emote <laughs> for. But with, with, Trevor Keels, the thing about him on defense is it's not like he, he can be physical with guys, but it, with his big stature, like guys have to and long work arms. harder to long go arms. around him. Yeah. yeah, he has to work harder to go around him. They can't go through him because they'll, they'll just bounce right off of him. And because of that, he has an advantage because he knows that when he puts his arms out and he stands in the middle of you, you have nowhere to go except maybe backwards. And if you're going backwards to try and restart an offense to create more passing lanes, then you're already behind the eight ball because the, you know, it's only 30 second shot, 30 second shot clock. So you got to have guys who can sit there and be an imposing figure on the perimeter where the guys have to really abandon whatever they're doing and try and try and, you know, work it another way. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to mention really quickly about the scrimmage was Jeremy Roach. You guys have each mentioned it a little bit, but I just wanted to point out specifically, I counted, um, I went back and counted, I counted six lobs the Jeremy Roach through to four different teammates. I'm, I may have been, you know, I may have been off by that, but cause I was, you know, fast forwarding around on YouTube, which can be kind of difficult. But anyway, um, I thought that he was, I thought Jeremy Roach had great chemistry with anybody he was playing with and he was getting in the lane and the defense comes to help. And he just tosses that ball up there and he knows he's got a teammate who's just waiting to, to slam it down. And I am, I am 100% here for Duke 
leading the ACC in slam dunks this year, which I think is very possible. All right, so uh, we're going to move on to our next Duke basketball topic, which we're gonna, very quick on this. Um, folks, if you haven't, uh, if you don't listen to Matt Norlander and uh, Gary Parrish's podcast, the Ion College Basketball Podcast from CBS Sports, the other day they did a edition where part of what they talked about is they, they asked questions of more than 100 coaches, Division I coaches. They went out there and, you know, confidential. They did this survey. And one of the questions they asked in the survey, and by the way, they were mostly asking, mostly talking to Power Five conference coaches, you know, big time. This is not like they were going out to Abilene Christian or something like that and small time. These are going, they're going to the big programs and they're asking those coaches questions. And one of the questions that they asked, which program, which legendary program will be in better shape in five years? Duke under John Shire replacing Coach K or North Carolina under Hubert Davis replacing Roy Williams. And the results of the survey were pretty shocking. I think all of us would say, oh, Duke's gonna be better off under John Shire, but I mean, that's not like a given. But the result of the survey was 71 to 29, 71% to 29% of, of these other college coaches saying that Duke would be better off under John Shire than Carolina under Hubert Davis. And one interesting thing worth noting is, apparently it was much closer when they're first starting to do their survey. Um, it was running about 60-40 Duke. And then Shire got Derek Lively. And I think everyone went, okay, that really, you know, okay, it was one thing to get Kyle Filipowski, played for Andy Borman. One thing to get Derek Whitehead, everyone knows he was kind of a Duke lean. One thing to get Jaden uh, Jaden Shoot, But Derek Lively, this is the guy that everybody in the country wanted. This is the guy that Kentucky desperately wanted. And I think when that happened, what Matt Lor Norlander said was, at that point, it just became overwhelming for Duke. And that's why they got to the final margin of 71 to 29. Sam, I'll come to you first. First of all, what do you think about this as a question? And what do you think about the results of what they, what they found out? I think it's a fascinating topic. And I know that the CBS guys do this Candid Coaches series every offseason. Like, I don't know how long I've been reading them. But, but this, is a, this is an annual thing where they ask about all kinds of topics around college basketball. This was a great one to ask about and, and uh, amazing sort of how parallel the experience or, the, or the, the current situation at both Duke and UNC is, other than the fact that Coach K is spending this year on the bench with Duke and Roy Williams is not. But otherwise, very similar trajectories in terms of promoting the top assistant, a guy who, you know, John Shire has, has less of a, a variety of professional experiences as Hubert Davis, who obviously played in the NBA is a little bit older, got to sit on the bench in the NBA a little bit as a, as an assistant has been an analyst. John Shire really just went from his pro career right to the Duke bench. So not exactly the same in that regard, but all things considered very similar. I'm very interested in the uh, reaction from the coaches on this. And to your point, Jason, the fact that it was, you know, maybe pretty close before the recruiting gets tells you how important the recruiting is to this whole process. John Shire and Hubert Davis do not have to come up with all the game plans themselves. They do not have to motivate the team all themselves. They both have experienced assistant coaches who are there with them to guide them on this journey. John Shire is going to be leaning on Chris Carowell a lot, and he's going to be leaning on Nolan Smith a lot. Nolan obviously has less coaching experience than John has, but has a lot of experience kind of leading the program. Same thing for Hubert Davis. He's got experienced 
Tar Heel alums who are sitting next to him who are going to help him with that. But when it comes to recruiting the top talent and getting them to come and commit and stay in the program, that is something that the head coach has a huge impact on. And so far, that's really the main thing that we can judge John Shire on. If you want to be pessimistic about John Shire's chances sort of as himself, let alone the kind of macro discussion of what does it mean to follow a legend at one of these programs? UNC, I think we would say is probably in better position in that regard because they've had multiple, you know, hall of fame, highly notable coaches come through the program between Dean Smith and Roy Williams. Duke really has coach K and and to the extent that Duke had, you know, final fours and, and success before Coach K, that stuff was there. But that is very ancient history in, in the minds of anyone who is involved in college basketball now. So that could be a problem for John Shire. The, the place where I, I think he would struggle otherwise is that we've got limited and not super positive returns on his time as a head coach. He obviously filled in for Coach K for one game this past season when the team was playing Boston College, Coach K was in COVID protocol and the team won by one point at home, which is one game, right? If you want to knock John Shire as a head coach, you know, have at it. He only managed to he only managed to win one game by one point against a team that was not NCAA tournament bound. I don't think it's a huge deal. I think he's going to learn a lot on the job both this year and next year. And uh, I, I think I would agree if I'm going to try to be dispassionate about this whole thing, I would agree. I think with the majority of coaches here, that Duke is probably in better position purely because of the recruiting thing, but you know, can't be surprised if, if Hubert Davis manages to leverage the, the UNC brand a little bit better in, in building that program back up to, you know, national stats. Not that it's not that they're not that they're not national. They, they, they've won a national championship more recently than Duke has. But, um, but very interesting stuff uh, here from the CBS crew. Yeah, so for me, there was a couple of things that I noted about just the general like taking of the survey, right? You, Jason, you mentioned that most people had uh, already submitted their decision or their, their thoughts on it before the Derek Lively decision. It was about 75% of the coaches that they surveyed had told them what was going on before Derek Lively. So that tells me that even if it's 60-40, 60-40 is pretty, it's a pretty big number if you're thinking about it. I was thinking that most coaches would have it close to 50-50. The one thing I will note, though, is that many framed it as that even though they thought Duke was going to be better, they didn't think UNC was going to be trash, right? They thought they were still going to be good, just not as good. And I think that's a very key stat here because I think all of us would agree that, yeah, we may think Duke is going to be better, but that doesn't mean that UNC is just going to fall off the face of a cliff and never to be heard from again. They're Carolina. And I think one of the things that I, I, I looked at both of the, uh, the, the responses that they got, some pro Duke, some pro UNC. One, the funniest one I thought was just, one guy just said, quote, I trust Shire more than I trust Hubert. It's really that simple. And I'm like, yeah, of course, that's that's a pretty good thing. But note, remember, Hubert Davis is taking over this year. He is the current head coach of the UNC Tar Heels. John Shire has a year before he even takes the mantle as head coach of the Duke Blue Devils. So the fact that a lot of people already are like, I trust John Shire and he hasn't even coached a, a practice. I mean, he at that point, he probably hadn't even coached a practice as associate head coach in waiting yet so like we have that right but for UNC a lot of people went back to the whole thing of Carolina as Carolina 
and that Duke is really Coach K. And I think that is the show. We've, we've talked about this. This is the shell that John Shirey has to break. Duke, has, Duke is one of the top five programs ever. And most of that has been under the tutelage of Coach K because Coach K has been around so long. So what Coach K or what John Shirey has to realize is that he's the guy after the guy. And a lot of people always talk about being the guy after the guy. He just wants to break through that shell to be Coach Shire, right? He doesn't need to go for 40 years. He doesn't even go for 20 years. He just wants to be able to craft his own legacy in, within this bigger umbrella of Duke basketball. So that is why when we talk about, yes, even before the recruiting successes, we were exercising patience because he needs that patience to be able to develop what he is going to do as a coach. Right now he's off to a roaring start and he hasn't coached the practice yet. But I think when it comes to Carolina, we always talk, we always hear about the Carolina way and yada, 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 because they have so many coaches that have come through the program that have been successful. But we have to give John Shire a chance to be successful. We think he can be. And it looks like a lot of the coaches do as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a really fun survey. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled, obviously, that John Shire came out on top, but the proof will be in the pudding, um, you know surveys are nice what matters is results on the floor so far his results recruiting are great and starting in a year we'll get to see uh, what his results are like on the floor we're going to take a quick break here on the dbr podcast when we come back we got to talk a little bit of football duke carolina the victory bell it stays in chapel hill we'll break it down in just a minute And we're back, and it is time to talk a little bit of Duke football. Uh, the results are not good. Um, Duke played the North Carolina Tar Heels over the weekend, and we lost 38-7. to seven. I mean, to some extent, I think the game was a lot closer than that score, but it's not like it was a really, really super competitive game. Um, really frustrating for a Duke fan. Uh, guys, a couple things that I noted in this game before I get to you all. I just wanted to, to mention this. At one point in the third quarter, because <laughs> I, I, I really was noticing this, Duke had outgained Carolina on the game. Uh, Duke was at like 300 yards of offense and Carolina was at about 260. We did outgained them about 40 yards. At, at that moment in the game when Duke had gained more yards than UNC, the score was 24 to 7, Carolina leading. Uh, that's, you, you can't win if you are down three scores to a team when you're outgaining them on the game. Uh, our inability, uh, the turnovers, our inability to execute once we got to the 40 yard line, the Carolina 40 line, our yard line, it was like, it was like a, a, a barrier was there. We would hit the 40 and then we couldn't do anything. It was, uh, we had very untimely penalties. Um, every, it seemed like every big play, like we were two of 15 on third down. It's just a, a really frustrating game because and this seems crazy to say, 38 to 7. I mean, they, they beat the pants off of us. I don't feel like they were that much better of a team. Like in the first half, Duke was getting killed in the first half. And I was like, I think we're the better team. It's really, really frustrating to have these sort of little errors, little mistakes, just turn, you know, I don't know what to say about it, but it's, it's really, it's, it just drives me crazy. Sam, what, what were your thoughts? It's fascinating to me that after the first game, uh, my reaction, I think both of your reactions was, oh boy, this is going to be, 
this is going to be a tough season. Like Duke is losing to non-power five teams. Uh, they don't look motivated, et cetera, et cetera. Then they come back and reel off three straight wins to finish out the non-conference slate. Obviously, Northwestern, Kansas, and NCA&T are not like the murderer's row of non-conference schedules, but you're beating other Power 5 teams. Uh, Northwestern has turned out not to be good this year, but, but in, in recent years has been a, a fairly competitive program. So I, I would have said, you know, last week it was, you know, things are looking okay. And then honestly, even through the first 20 minutes of this game against Carolina, Duke was down 14 nothing. but to your point, Jason, it's not like they had played worse. That, that pick six, that, uh, or I guess it was a, it was a scoop six, a like fumble, a fumble yeah. Yeah. turned into a, to a touchdown for UNC in the, in the beginning of the second quarter was like the most fluke play thing that had happened. And I didn't think to that point that Duke was playing poorly. The defense was, was playing really well to that point. Yeah, and Carolina's and, only score up until then was that little play along the sideline where the guy just outruns everybody. It was not a play that was like Carolina marched down the field methodically or something like that. It was just a, like, no, oh, it, look, it, it, it did not feel like it did not feel like the vaunted Carolina offense was dismantling the Duke defense. Exactly. Um, at least early in the game. So my takeaway from this, if I want to be, I think I want to be vaguely positive because I think there's a lot of negativity around the Duke football program right now. They went on that, that, years-long run of being competitive in the Coastal, if not winning the Coastal, as they did one year, and certainly making bowl games more often than not. That has not been the case in recent years. It was not the case at the end of the Daniel Jones era and and has sort of continued in this this weird mire since then. I actually feel like the team has played really well, and there are there are bright spots on both sides of the ball, the, the running game, which I don't think Duke focuses on enough, the running game and Mateo Durant being the, the leading rusher for Duke has been excellent this year. And Gunnar Holmberg has not, you know, he's not, he's not Daniel Jones. He's not Sean Renfrey. He's not the, the greatest quarterback in Duke history or anything. He's been good enough, but he's, yeah. but he's managing the game really well. And, and that, that fumble is like not his fault. Right. I mean, that uh, my, my, that was the, that's the moment where like, where everything past that just felt like Duke was playing catch up the whole time. And, and it was really just one offensive lineman being, you know, half a step too late on, on keeping the, the Carolina defensive lineman contained. If, if, even if that, that lineman gets to Gunnar Holmberg half a second earlier, it's just a sack and it doesn't turn into the scoop score that it did. So that, that's sort of how, just random it felt in this game. I didn't think that Duke played so poorly that they should be demoralized. They're going to win an ACC game this year. Carolina is talented. They're not, I mean, they're not ranked anymore because they've, they've had some struggles, but they're a, they're a very talented team. They'll be in the running for the coastal. And I don't think that Duke performed poorly, despite what the final force, what the final score says. I think when it comes to Duke, a lot of the, the bounces, the fumbles, the interceptions, the little things here and there are the reason are, are because we're not a good football team. We're not a terrible football team, but we're not good. A good football team gets, gets those bounces, right? Like UNC, they had a couple of bounces go their way and it makes it where it looks like it's a lopsided victory where in the first half, it didn't. That's what happens. It, it sometimes the football, uh, a lot, we like to say the ball don't lie. Sometimes the ball just likes to, you know, lie with the good teams. That's how it works. But when I look at the Coastal Division, we talk about, you know, will they win any, you know, conference games this year? The answer is going to be yes. Here's why. Because the Coastal Division is not that good this year. 
I mean, Carolina is a talented football team, but they're not playing very well lately. Virginia Tech, good football team, but not playing very well. Pitt, a good football team, not necessarily playing that well. Virginia escaped by the seat of their pants. They needed, you know, Miami, who has been awful this year. They needed Miami to blow a field goal at the last second to win their game on Thursday night. And Georgia Tech, who we do face this coming weekend, Georgia Tech has not been playing very well either. So Duke is in an opportunity where even though they are not playing terribly well, they have some of these things where they can build some confidence and take that out on teams where who are also not playing well. They're entering a slate of games where there are guys who are not necessarily lighting up the scoreboard that much. And they just have to see if these bounces can go their way. And if they can work on the confidence aspect of things, the momentum aspect of things, those bounces will go their way. That fumble will be recovered by Duke. We can maintain possession. That, you know, tip in the air gets caught for a first down. Those little things are what's going to make Duke successful down the line. And I think when it comes to Duke, they just have to make sure that they're doing what they're doing and focus on the fundamentals because after that everything's going to go their way yeah you know yeah i completely agree about the fumbles and the fundamentals and that kind of stuff the one other thing i would add though and and you guys are both taking a a little more of the optimist view um and i don't want to be the pessimist but i do want to i do want to call things as i see them I, i was very frustrated in in the play call yesterday in duke's offensive um plan of attack uh, first play from scrimmage, Mateo Durant rips off 30 plus yards on the ground. And Duke then immediately started passing the ball. Um, why not see if Carolina is going to ever bother to tackle Mateo Durant? They, by the way, they didn't all day. They he didn't. Averaged, <laughs> he averaged six yards a carry. And um, I, I think we should have gotten him the ball more. I think we should have leaned on him more. We should have forced Carolina to make a play of Mateo Durant, which they didn't seem like they wanted to make. Similarly, in the second half, we start the second half with the ball. And the first was the first play from scrimmage. We rip off an 80-yard touchdown. And we then go back to, okay, well, we got a score. We have momentum in our back pocket. And it's just the same play calls that you and I can call from home. Yeah, and and my my problem with the play calls, and this is is funny. uh, A friend of the podcast, um, Bob Green, who, who, you know, everybody on the DBR knows Bob Green. Bob follows Duke football religiously. Uh, Bob and I were emailing with each other and he's and I was saying to him that I had noticed uh, in the first half at one point Duke was averaging less than four yards per pass. That's not four yards per completion. That's four yards per pass. Like every time we went back, we were uh, sorry. I I mean, it is four yards per completion. It it was it was ridiculous. And I said, we're not throwing the ball downfield. Like I, I at one point I was watching. I was like, I don't think we've thrown the ball more than six, seven yards downfield, you know, the entire half. And Bob wrote back to me and Bob said, yeah, the sideways passing game isn't working well for us. And I'd never heard it referred to that way, but that's what Duke does. Duke throws the ball sideways. It doesn't throw it downfield. And Carolina was clearly ready for that. And that's the kind of play call that I'm talking about. That's really frustrating. And, you know, I don't, I I don't know what these, we got co-offensive coordinators. You'd think one of them could figure out how to get the ball downfield a little bit. Although the, the announcers kept on saying our guys weren't getting any separation. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's frustrating because like I said, I feel like this team had enough that they, they had a chance in this game and they didn't give themselves a chance with some stupid execution and some poor play calling. There's a strange lack of kind of coaching preparation that is apparent in terms of the offensive play calling where 
Duke hasn't really committed to the fact that Mateo Durant is the most effective weapon for this team, that, that the, the running game really uh, should be the focus of the Duke offense this year. It's not coach Cutcliffe's preferred style. And it's a, it's a little annoying and kind of a disappointment that they haven't recognized that and just gone in that way. Yeah. Well, we've got Georgia tech coming up home game against Georgia tech. It's a, it's one of those many games that, as you guys point out, Duke has a chance to win. There's, you know, I, I don't look at the schedule and see anybody in the schedule where I'm like, oh, we've got, we've got zero chance in this game. So let's and take the some ACC of those is a total, is a total cluster this year. Yeah, it's exactly. Just, yeah. We, we ain't playing Georgia. We ain't playing Alabama, by the way, Georgia and Alabama. Can we, wow. Can we very glad forward? we're not playing Georgia and Alabama. <laughs> can we fast forward to January and just have Georgia and Alabama play? Because that is those clearly what is going to happen. Georgia, those, Georgia those is are, stupid good. Those are the closest to NFL teams that we have in college. Oh, oh, I'm a Falcons fan. I think Georgia could play the Falcons. <laughs> well, here's the thing I always say. Georgia probably has maybe 15 or 20 uh, NFL players on their on their team. The Falcons have 53. So right. <laughs> that's true. There's always that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point. Yes, very, very true. All right. In any event, we're going to wrap it up here with that on the DBR podcast. We'll be back very, very soon. For Sam and Donald, I am Jason. Thanks, always. Thanks, as always, for being with us. Please write to us, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a nice review, subscribe, all that stuff. You know how to do it. Basketball season is getting closer and closer. Countdown to craziness is like a week and a half away, something like that. We're going to have so much content for you, you won't even believe it. For Donald, for Sam, I'm Jason. Goodbye. Here's the Duke Band to play us out and take us home. Have I told you guys what I'm doing starting on the 16th? No. I'm going to Vegas from the 16th through the 20th um, to play in the World Series of Poker. Oh, yeah, yeah. Holy you shit. did say that. Yeah. Not, that is okay, sick. To be clear, not the main event, not the $10,000 main event. What Just event? Like some, well, so there, there are a series of events. Uh, hopefully, I will play in one event. <laughs> the I, the World a, Series of Poker is, is an actual, like, like circuit of of things uh, so it's for like a month or so yeah it's tournaments at the rio for like a month that all the big pros play and they get you know thousands of people for every one of them and some have buy-ins as low as five hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars and some of them have buy-ins as much as twenty five thousand dollars and every so often they'll do a hundred thousand dollar one the main event is ten thousand dollars i'm going to be entering one four-day tournament that's a fifteen hundred dollar buy-in if I do well, I will play for four days. <laughs> Odds well, it, are pretty good. I won't play for four days in that one tournament. So and didn't you much, say you were going to bring your son to one of them, or you were waiting? You're relying on a on a Duke win to a Duke. I, I still might. Of, I still might. You know. Yeah. <laughs>